What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Amgen. Amgen has a long-standing commitment to expanding therapeutic options for patients and is leveraging its experience developing biologics towards its biosimilars programs. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. The onslaught of COVID-19 cases exposed strengths and weaknesses in healthcare with lessons on how to build resilient systems and provide effective health outcomes for communities. In this episode, healthcare professionals and advocates join Washington Post Live to discuss the sustainability of health systems as they now work towards greater equity across all populations and tackle the epidemic of chronic disease. Let's listen. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Yasmina Boutalib, National Health Policy Reporter here at The Post. Thanks for joining us today for our program on healthcare sustainability and, re and resilience. We have a very impressive panel of guests today. First up, we have Dr. Cecilia Calhoun of Yale University, Dr. Allison Arwady, Commissioner for the Chicago Department of Public Health, and Dr. Michelle, um, sorry, Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, the CEO and president of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So today we're talking about what we've learned from the pandemic, um, what lessons we can take from it, and how we can build a more sustainable and resilient healthcare system out of that. And one of the issues that was, of course, laid bare during this pandemic was healthcare disparities and inequity. So we want to talk about addressing those and how all of those will help us build a stronger and more resilient healthcare system. So Dr. Calhoun, I want to start with you. How did you see the COVID-19 pandemic illuminate the discrepancies in health in healthcare across socioeconomic um, and racial uh, populations? Well, I'm glad that you use the word illuminate because we know that these are long-standing inequities and disparities that have been present for years. And what the pandemic was, was make them super salient at a time when the rest of the nation was paused and had it could focus attention on these things. And so when we think about the populations that were adversely affected by both morbidity and mortality by the pandemic, it was those same underserved communities who had been persistently and historically affected by healthcare disparities. Dr. Arwady, you've talked about the role that racism plays in healthcare. You declared uh, racism a public health crisis in Chicago. You've spoken about the importance of understanding how systemic racism influences healthcare disparities. You've also hired the first chief racial equities officer in your office. So why is it critical for us to understand and look at the issue of healthcare equity through that lens? What have you learned in your experience? 
Absolutely. So as Dr. Calhoun said, this is not new, but COVID shone a light on the decisions that we have made as a society, as a city, and a long history of not equal opportunities. And it's not just about healthcare access. It's about all of the other things that also drive health outcomes, uh, these social determinants of health. And so here in Chicago, even before COVID, we had committed as a health department uh, to focusing on the racial life expectancy gap where black Chicagoans live nine years on average, less long than other Chicagoans. Uh, and certainly COVID brought that to light, but we feel strongly you've got to build systems uh, that talk honestly about that and then put resources where they most are needed. And Dr. McMurray Heath, you've got this very unique lens where you've worked in both the public and the private sector. And I want to bring both of those into those conversations. So when we're looking at these issues, when you look at it both from the public side and the private side, what do you think would make a difference in providing better outcomes? Mm. Well, we must be concerned with not just providing access to healthcare, which is critically important. And at the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, we represent over a thousand biotech companies who are interested in not just getting their um, their solutions to patients, but also making sure that as we develop new solutions, we are keeping the entire range of patient populations in mind. We must have diversity and inclusion in biomedical research, in clinical trials, but then in dissemination and access to those therapies at the end of the day. If you miss any one of those stools of the uh, legs of the stool, you are in trouble. Dr. Arwady, this is something I cover a lot. Of course, one of the big challenges with healthcare and health coverage in this country is that it's predominantly tied to employment. So of course, the unemployed have a very difficult time finding access to quality care. But even for people who do work and are in low paying jobs, they often can't find adequate coverage or they're undercovered, whether through Medicaid or a junk insurance plan, whatever it might be. So how have you seen that play out in communities across Chicago and how do you see it impact the people with this not, not sufficient enough coverage? Yeah, so I do think, again, the decisions that we've made, whether we consider health and healthcare access to be a human right or a privilege based on the job someone may have or their particular conditions is a decision. And what we've done here and what we've very much seen, and I know it's true across the country, is that where you have large numbers of people who are uninsured or not just uninsured, but not connected to health, don't have that primary care provider, uh, where there's not been work to think about people who may not be eligible for insurance, people are undocumented, for example, uh, we see health issues really compound in those same communities. And so, you know, I would just take as one very brief example, the vaccine. People do not actually understand the concept of there being something free and available uh, to all because they're so used to many folks feeling shut out of the healthcare system uh, with major concerns about finances. And to me, that's not really a, a system. And if we're going to get preventive care really in place, that needs to be done in a lot of ways, uh, sort of outside of maybe the traditional ways that we've thought of uh, with our insurance-based healthcare system. And as the public health uh, entity in Chicago, uh, that's where we try to fill some of those gaps. And Dr. Calhoun, I saw that you spoke earlier on the issue of health inequities, and you said that naming structural inequities is absolutely critical in developing solutions. Can you walk us through what that means and what work we need to do to follow through on that? I think part of that ties quite nicely with what Dr. Arati just said. You know, the decision um, to determine whether or not healthcare is a fundamental human right, it's a decision. So I think we first have to acknowledge where our gaps are before 
before we can address them. And so when we think about structures in place and how they inform how we provide quality care and how we interface with our community and the communities in which we serve, being very clear about where those gaps are, are gonna be so important, it's so important for us to address them. I think that the vaccine rollout was really a great example of that in that communities of color who were disproportionately affected were targeted um, and listened to and seen and heard uh, when implementing vaccine effort, efforts. And this is something that I wanna ask all of you, Dr. McMurray-Heath, I'll start with you. It's obviously no surprise that a lot of people feel that the US healthcare system has failed them, that they don't have trust in it or in doctors for whatever reason that their personal experience might have shaped them, that there are barriers that exist that, that prevent them from getting adequate care. So when we talk about universal coverage, do you think that's something that would help address these inequities and level the playing field? Is that something that's even possible with a system as complex and decentralized as the US healthcare system? It's obviously been a big point of debate, so I'm just curious how you all kind of view um, that proposal and whether it's something that's feasible here. Yeah, well, I can't speak to the possibility, but I will speak to the necessity. We must have universal access to care and patients should not face financial barriers in terms of getting their medications and following their doctor's advice. That's why the Biotechnology Innovation Organization is really focused on trying to lower out-of-pocket costs, but it goes beyond that. You know, it was so clear from what Dr. Arwadi said and Dr. Callan said, that we also have to make sure that we are involving communities of color and vulnerable communities in every step of the drug development and um, research pathway so that we're sure that what comes out at the end of the day benefits all communities equally. Um, this is incredibly important and there have been structural barriers to this in the past that must come down. Dr. Calhoun, do you wanna chime in? I'm curious what you think as well. Well, I'm a hematologist and my primary patient population is adolescents and young adults with sickle cell disease, one that disproportionately affects African-Americans. And so when I listen to um, the conversation around new and novel therapies and this particular disease is so important where the life expectancy is 20 years less than a person without sickle cell disease and engaging um, communities of color across the pipeline is key to getting these interventions developed successfully, but also getting them implemented. And so I'm just so encouraged by this conversation and by the awareness that's coming about because of the pandemic. Dr. Arwadi? Yes, I mean, we do believe that health is a fundamental human right at the public health department. And again, that's not just about access to health care. It's about all of the things that come really outside and before health care in a preventive way. But it is very frustrating to me when I've got patients here in Chicago who have long haul COVID and yet are unable to be seen in long haul COVID specific uh, settings because they may not have the right kind of insurance. And so I do think as a country, it's a huge issue. You know, it's not going to be solved overnight. But among among the many things that I hope COVID has woken us up to is how interconnected all of our health is. Uh, and when there are people that are left out of that system, that isn't just about that person. It also is about neighborhoods uh, and, and, and whole cities. And Dr. Arwadi, I want to stay with you for a second. Um, we can't have this discussion about health equity without talking about social determinants of health. And that was obviously a big point of discussion with the pandemic. So when you, as you saw it play out on the ground in Chicago, 
How did you see the social determinants of health impact who was at highest risk of COVID and how did it impact trying to manage the pandemic um, and the various populations that were at highest, at highest risk? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in every factor we saw this. So at the most basic level, if you think about what were the recommendations, stay home as much as you're able to, for example. Uh, we very clearly, we have a quite segregated, racially and ethnically segregated uh, city here in Chicago. And you saw parts of the city that are heavily uh, white and are more affluent we were able to follow anonymous cell phone data and see that those folks were largely able to stay home. Now, why is that? They have jobs that may enable them to stay home. Uh, they have access to, you know, internet, et cetera, but they also are not needing to go out and purchase food every day. They're not having to deal with as many of the safety issues and other pieces. Um, and we saw this just in every single area that we were looking at. Crowded housing is something we have long followed uh, as a, you know, as a risk factor for other issues. But in this case, crowded housing literally meant inability to quarantine or, or isolate in some cases. Uh, and so as a city, very much of our COVID response was not just about here's what you need to do. It was about what are the barriers that are stopping you from doing that and really thinking about the wraparound services to allow someone uh, to quarantine. Um, and if you're in a job that doesn't have sick pay and doesn't have things that, you know, that, that really help protect not just the, um, the employee, but the employment situation, uh, you've got a lot of people who say, you know, I just, I can't miss work. Um, and again, these are all tied together, but they're just decisions that we've made as a society, uh, and they came to light in the different disease rates that we saw in Chicago and around the country. And Dr. Calhoun, given the patient population that you work with, I want to ask you the same question. How did you see social determinants of health impacting the toll that the pandemic was taking on, on your patients and on other people in the communities that you care for? Yeah, quite similarly, um, you know, patients have to make a decision between do I go and earn a living or do I comply by these guidelines that were set without, you know, maybe consideration of all uh, facets of society. And it is this theme of interconnectedness that we have to notice and remember as we move forward, as we are not quite out of our pandemic just yet. And our decision-making processes, understanding that the social determinants of uh, our population at all facets in, in making um, public health and health decisions. And Dr. McMurray Heath, obviously we saw during this pandemic, both under the Trump and the Biden administration, that there was an extensive use of government programs to help address the, the crisis right in front of us, maybe not so much long-term. Um, you first had the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, and then you had the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, which amounted to trillions of dollars over the last year and a half. So. How did you see these government programs impact or perhaps alleviate the toll that the pandemic was taking? Yeah, they were essential. You know, the Families First Act and the CARE Act really allowed patients to access things like COVID vaccines, diagnostics, and to a lesser degree, therapeutics without dealing with that barrier of cost, as Dr. Awoodi um, alluded to earlier. And we fought very, very hard for those provisions in those bills because we wanted to make sure that every patient had access to what was going to protect them from this deadly pandemic. But we also should keep an eye on what's coming on the horizon. We're not yet out of the woods with the 
this pandemic, but there's a second more silent pandemic right underneath our, our view. And that's the pandemic of chronic non-communicable diseases that have perhaps gone neglected over this last 18 months. And so you look at companies across our spectrum, including one of our member companies, Amgen, um, their CEO, Dr. Bradbury, is really focused on how can we diagnose some of these chronic conditions earlier to make sure that vulnerable communities get access to care and preventive services as seamlessly as possible. This is going to be more important than ever to accomplish. And in our last few minutes, I want to take a look at the bigger picture a little bit. So I'll start with you, Dr. Calhoun. What do you think are the most important lessons, or maybe there's a single lesson that you think we should take away from this pandemic? The two that are most salient to me, again, is this idea of interconnectedness and that if we want to provide quality care, that we have to address equity and that it's not just the benevolence of the human spirit that makes equity a value proposition. It's that when our communities, one, all of our communities are served well, we all do better. We all have better and efficient spending. And I think the other thing is, is the bi-directional knowledge exchange when thinking about how we intervene and provide access to different therapies and to provide quality of care. In this particular instance, it is hearing the community, acknowledging, making them seen, and it's not just prescriptive, but it is truly a collaborative effort moving forward. And Dr. Arwadi, I think I want to ask you the same question. You obviously had a very important and unique vantage point as the commissioner for the Chicago Department of Public Health. Chicago was one of the hardest hit cities at a point. So to you, what were some of the most important lessons? And we're obviously not out of the woods that you've taken away from this. Yeah, well, I think just to, I completely agree with what Dr. Calhoun said. And just to add on to that, where we think about being prepared for whatever's next as a city, as a nation, it is essential that we broaden our view of what that means. Chicago Department of Public Health actually had a lot. We had millions of N95 masks stored and ready to go, and thank God we did. But the work that we've learned through COVID of you know, creating racial equity rapid response teams that are out in communities, pulling folks in, saying, what do we need to do differently in a very data-driven way, where every week we're looking differently, creating these structures and hiring folks from within communities who want to work on chronic health issues, for example, you've then got that core and that infrastructure that lets you for whatever's coming next in terms of health crises. And we've got, you know, opioid overdoses and violence and other things that are already existent. Those uh, structures where healthcare systems are connected, community-based organizations are connected, and we thought systemically about how to support uh, our most vulnerable citizens with and, and residents with an equity lens is as much a part of preparedness as whether we've got masks on the shelf. And Dr. McMurray-Heath, I'm going to leave you with the, the final word, which is what? how can we use these lessons to prepare for future pandemics? What work do we need to do now so that there is a much less devastating toll when we inevitably encounter the next one? Yeah, well, it's so important to underscore the point that Dr. Calhoun raised, which is we have to involve minority communities from the very inception of thinking about how we attack 
um, and conquer some of these infectious diseases. You know, involving minority communities in the clinical trials around COVID vaccines was invaluable in being able to return to those communities once we had a vaccine in hand and try to communicate um, the trust and the ability of these vaccines to actually serve those communities. And then finally, I would just say we are all in this together, and that includes breaking them down the distinction between domestic health care and global health care. We need to make sure that as we're getting these cures and solutions online, that they are spread to every corner of the globe that needs them. Well, that's all the time that we have to, for today, but thank you so much to all of you for such a great discussion. To my guests, Dr. Arwady, Dr. Calhoun, and Dr. McMurray-Heath, we are so grateful that you joined us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Please stay with us. We'll be back in just a few moments with Dr. Tom Friedman. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Elise Labatt of American University, and today we're discussing the impact of COVID-19 on global healthcare systems and economies, and how to build a resilient healthcare system that balances innovation, competition, and affordability. I'm joined by Ian Thompson. Ian is the Senior Vice President and General Manager of U.S. General Medicine at Amgen. Ian, thanks for joining us. Hi, Elise. It's great to be with you today. Well, let's start with COVID. Life is slowly beginning to normalize, but we can't forget the pandemic was a shock to health systems around the world and have taken a, a real incredible financial toll on governments, physicians, hospitals, and most importantly, patients. So talk to me a bit about how we can um, prepare for future shocks and withstand them uh, with a more resilient healthcare system. Yeah, to your point, Elise, the last 16 months of massively strained healthcare resources placed a huge financial burden on a variety of stakeholders and clearly exposed significant weakness in our healthcare systems. We've seen governments forced to allocate unbudgeted resources for the response efforts, hospitals have been put at financial risk, and access to care issues have magnified long-standing health inequities, particularly amongst minority communities. So I think the net effects are worsening health outcomes and a worsening burden, if you will. So to prepare for the challenge ahead, I think we need to pay attention to you know, what we need to invest in. And investing in innovation, technology, and resilience of the healthcare system are critically important. And obviously, we also need to look to you know, ways to manage the costs more effectively within these systems as well. One of the things the pandemic reinforced for Amgen uh, was whilst at our heart, we are driven by scientific innovation, our commitment to developing high quality biosimilars is more important than ever and can significantly contribute to helping manage some of those healthcare costs here in the US, but also around the world as well. And we're actually leveraging our innovation to do this in that we leverage our innovative manufacturing capabilities to uh, produce these uh, biosimilars and at present, we've got about $2 billion worth of investment in biosimilars and around about 10 biosimilars in our uh, development portfolio. So as we start to exit the pandemic and prepare ourselves for the future, our focus at Amgen remains on, as I've said, innovative medicines to treat grievous illness, leveraging innovation in our manufacturing capabilities to bring high quality cost saving biosimilars to more patients around the world uh, and delivering access solutions to help patients receive the care they need and obviously continuing our dialogue with public and private sector partners to secure a more resilient uh, healthcare system for the future. 
Well, let's branch out a bit um, to the, the the secondary healthcare crisis that's been created by COVID. You know, I've read that COVID prompted as many as two thirds of Americans to postpone or cancel medical visits for chronic conditions. And I know myself, you know, I held out on certain medical appointments because I was afraid to go to the doctor or afraid of um, going to the hospital because of COVID. And I know Amgen's ha has been leading in addressing this secondary healthcare crisis. And as challenges managing chronic diseases have emerged because of the pandemic. So how do you think this crisis can best be addressed from your perspective? Absolutely, Elise. And like yourself, I'm in the same situation. I just finally got back to my dermatologist after a delay of about 18 months on my original appointment. So, uh, you know, we're not unique in that situation. I think COVID understandably dominated our attention. I mean, clearly in the US alone, it claimed somewhere around 580,000 lives so far. And it's brought to light the urgent need for a change across the healthcare system. Now, as you mentioned, um, chronic disease has a huge toll in terms of death, disability, impaired quality of life. And these also impose tremendous economic burden as well. I think if you compare the 580,000 deaths from COVID to heart disease, for example, around 650,000 people die every year in the US from heart disease alone. Add cancer to that, another 600,000 people every year in the US as well. And that's not to mention you know, many, many other diseases, osteoporosis, 400,000 fractures and so on. So at Amgen, what we're doing is we're making every effort to intervene earlier, to screen appropriately and prevent where possible. So drive programs to prevent, to help improve patient outcomes, reduce costs, and address population health writ large as best we possibly can. Clearly, we can't do this alone, so we partner with organizations like the, uh, the CDC Foundation, the International, International Osteoporosis Foundation, the UK's National Health Service, as well as a range of other private and public partners. But again, going back to the biosimilars, we believe the biosimilars play an important role here too, and into the future as well. And from our perspective, competition created by high quality biosimilars have the potential to alleviate some of the financial burdens for the governments, hospitals and patients while delivering the clinical benefits of biological medicines and providing more choice overall. So obviously policy is going to be an important part of this. What do you think are some of the most um, innovative and effective proposals and solutions legislators should be prioritizing right now at, at the federal level to improve healthcare resilience and also support this competitive marketplace that you've been talking about that would include biosimilars? Great question, Elise. I think the pandemic's highlighted the need for policymakers to continue to invest in healthcare resilience. That's where we've seen some big, uh, some big challenges, as, as I've already mentioned, to continue investing in innovative medicines and vaccinations, as we've seen recently with the vaccination program for COVID, and to better anticipate future pandemics and to continue to address the inequities in healthcare and access and outcomes. I think policymakers must also pay attention to the risks of creating fragility in the healthcare system. For example, by imposing major austerity measures I've seen the cause of you know, almost you know, complete system collapse in some markets around the world that I've worked in over the last few years. And certainly in the last few months, you know, some, of those, uh, some of those healthcare systems were brought right to the brink. So that's absolutely key that we build that resilience in. In order to build resilience, I think the key is to you know, stay focused on that, bring innovation, bring biosimilars, and focus the, uh, you know, the, the, the policy building blocks, if you will, are probably consistent 
a rigorous and scientifically appropriate set of regulatory standards fit across all those areas. A marketplace that encourages competition on a level playing field, again, fits all those areas. Educational outreach to help build confidence and understanding of treatment options for all stakeholders, again, helps build that understanding of how the system works more effectively and how innovations and biosimilars can help side by side. And then finally, protection of intellectual property is absolutely key to encourage ongoing investment and innovation as a result. We're pleased right now to see the current marketplace with biosimilars is working. Policymakers you know, policy can, you know, can best ensure a long-term sustainable marketplace of biosimilars by maintaining effective policies that allow head-to-head -head competition amongst new reference products and biosimilars. And if you look at you know, some of the things that we've identified, we've just produced a, uh, a biosimilar trends report, and it shows that the market is working in that way. And the, you know, the report itself actually outlines how biosimilars are actually starting to reduce healthcare costs and that's going to produce continued savings over time. So to me, the debate in Congress about policy proposals to incentivize biosimilars um, adopts you know, risk-free market competition or worse, could, you know, could actually you know, stifle further innovation. So it's got to be a balance in that regard. So to me, the, you know, the, the key emphasis here is robust policy debate and free market competition will ultimately enable a resilient healthcare system that supports both innovative and biosimilar products, thus providing patients, physicians, payers with a range of treatment options and a degree of flexibility that uh, is going to help you know, all patients ultimately. Hopefully that answers the question at least. Yeah, of course. I mean, as we discussed, COVID has created so many challenges to health and healthcare systems. But I mean, we're discussing a lot of opportunities to build a more innovative, resilient and, and cost effective system that works for everybody. Ian Thompson, Senior Vice President and General Manager of U.S. General Medicine at Amgen. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Elise. Now we'll send it back to The Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Hello and welcome back. For those of you just joining us, I'm Yasmina Boutalib, health policy reporter here at The Post. Today we're talking about healthcare system resilience and in this next conversation, we're gonna focus on how chronic illness impact that. My next guest is Dr. Tom Frieden, the former head of the CDC and president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives. Dr. Frieden, thank you so much for joining us and welcome back. I'm delighted to join you. So before we dive in, I just want to help our audience out a little bit, because I think this term can be a bit confusing. Can you just define chronic illness for us, maybe give a couple of examples, just so it's clear what we're talking about today when we talk about chronic illness? It's really a, an imprecise term, because there can be infectious or non-infectious diseases that are chronic. But really, the bottom line is that th there are several diseases that are the leading killers uh, in our world. And these are heart attack, stroke, cancer, especially among people who have diabetes. And for these conditions, really we can make a huge difference by doing a better job preventing, treating, uh, and better managing these chronic conditions. Uh, they are in many cases preventable and in all cases uh, effectively treatable if we focus. So during this pandemic, we've of course seen and, and talked quite a bit about how the toll of mental illness has grown, how rates of obesity have increased. How else have you seen the pandemic exacerbate life for the chronically ill and the toll that that's taken on our healthcare system? Well, first off, 
uh, COVID itself is deadlier in people who are not resilient. So if you have people with kidney failure or uh, lung or heart problems, they're more likely to have deadly illness. Second, uh, healthcare has been seriously disrupted uh, in the US and all around the world by the pandemic. And what we're seeing is the interruption of effective treatments. Uh, and frankly, those treatments weren't being particularly well applied even before the pandemic. We need to do a much better job um, treating the leading causes of illness, disability, and death, especially high blood pressure. High blood pressure is so common that sometimes we don't see it, and yet it is the world's leading cause of death. 18 million deaths a year from cardiovascular disease, of which more than 10 million are from hypertension, and in the US, 800,000 deaths a year. So this is our leading cause of death, and yet much of it is preventable and treatable with better care. What the pandemic has done is to accentuate the risk that people who don't have a resilient health status face, and also to make it clear that uh, we can innovate to do better care for people living with conditions such as hypertension. Uh, the use of telemedicine has absolutely exploded in a great way all around the world during COVID. Now we have to hold those gains and make sure that things that are better for patients, better for health systems can be uh, preserved and extended uh, as we get through the COVID pandemic. And we've of course seen that Unfortunately, opioid addiction has also surged during the pandemic. So what actions do you think can be taken at the state level to deal with this increased burden? Of course, the, the focus of this conversation is, is the sort of unseen or hidden pandemic underneath the very obvious one that we've been dealing with for the last 18 months. We have to do much better in the United States and around the world at managing both pain and addiction. That means that the use of opiates should really be a last resort for chronic pain. And even for acute pain, there are other treatments which may be as effective. Now, obviously, if someone has been horribly injured and is in excruciating pain, that's a different situation. But what we've learned over the past decade is that not only do opiates not provide a significant benefit for the management of chronic pain, but they actually greatly increase the odds, not only of death from an overdose, but also of a lower level of functionality. People are less likely to get back to their former level of doing the things that love doing. But we also have to get much better in this country at, and around the world at managing addiction because addiction is a medical disease. It can be managed. We need to do better. That means that doctors need to do a better job of prescribing. Insurers need to provide a whole host of um, care management and pain management and physical therapy services that can be highly effective. Um, and we have to address, frankly, some of the addiction problems that we have in our society and some of the things that make it much easier for a clinician to write a prescription for an opiate rather than delve into what's really causing the problem and addressing the root causes of that for a patient. 
We're starting to see the impact that this pandemic has had on mental health in this country. The Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, was on our program on Friday, and he said that he's very concerned about the lasting impact the stress and anxiety of the last year and a half is going to have. So um, can you talk us through some of the broader implications of this increased mental health toll from the pandemic and the impact that that might have on our healthcare systems? We have a report coming out on this in a week or two at my organization, Resolve to Save Lives, but I'll give some of the highlights. First, it's really important to address uh, substance use and abuse. We've seen an increase in alcohol use as well as the increase in opiate use. And um, alcohol can have a wide range of health and social harms. And there are evidence-based mechanisms to reduce the risk of harmful alcohol use, especially among youth and especially with binge drinking, uh, which is defined as five or more drinks at one sitting for a male and four or more drinks at one sitting for a female. So addressing substance abuse, extremely important. And I have to say the most neglected area of our healthcare system, bar none. Uh, a, a little over a decade ago, there was a, a landmark study of healthcare in the US. It showed uh, Elizabeth McGlynn's study in the New England Journal of Medicine, actually more than 15 years ago now, showed that uh, the indicated care was only given about half of the time. Harmful care was given almost a fifth of the time. But what really stood out was you were in single digits when you had appropriate care for um, uh, patients with addiction. In addition, we have anxiety, depression, uh, addiction to screens, and really trying to come up with a better, healthier relationship between people and electronics. So we figure out when they're great enablers of connections among people, of efficiency, of working together, and when they can also be barriers to human connection and to students learning, to families um, uh, being able to interact effectively around the dinner table. So I think there are a lot of things that uh, will go back to the pre-pandemic normal, and there are a lot of things that will not go back, some for better and some not for better. It'll be great, for example, to see more telemedicine. Uh, it will also be great to see a more efficient use of teleconferencing and video conferencing so we can reduce the amount of travel that people have to do. But we also want to make sure that we build and strengthen social bonds because of the, those are so important to build our social capital of connections, whether that's at school, especially for our kids, or at work, or in communities. I want to turn a little bit to the management of chronic illness. So when we're talking about this, we're, we're sometimes a victim of our own success. There are advancements in treatment, but with that comes a, sometimes a significant added cost, whether it's specific treatments that are very expensive or ongoing treatment, whatever it might be. So how can we ensure that there is still sustainability in the healthcare system, even as advancements and costs along with that increase? Actually, we think there's a way forward here, and we're pretty certain of it. Uh, let's take high blood pressure. High blood pressure is the most deadly undertreated condition in the United States. You can save more lives in the United States and around the world among adults through better treatment of high blood pressure than through better treatment of any other condition. And we now know definitively that starting at a blood pressure of 115 over 70, 
your risk of death from a heart attack or a stroke doubles with every 20 point increase in your blood pressure. We also know definitively that lower is better down to at least 120 over 80. That doesn't mean everyone should aim for that blood pressure. That's something to discuss with your doctor. But we know that the medicines that are most effective to treat people with high blood pressure are safe, generic, inexpensive, effective, and can save your life. One of the great ironies of healthcare is we tend to over-treat symptomatic conditions and under-treat asymptomatic conditions. And the paradigm of that is hypertension. It's called the silent killer for a reason. And yet, if we look at healthcare systems around the country and around the world, they can get to 80, 90% control rates using simple, straightforward algorithms where you use a protocol that's been developed by physicians. It can be implemented by physicians or by nurses or by pharmacists or by others under a physician's direction. And when you follow those protocols, you get much better care. You get more control, less risk of stroke, heart attack, kidney failure, adverse events. And we really need to scale this up. What we've seen in the US, sadly, is that we've gone backwards. We have a lower level of hypertension control than we did a decade ago or five years ago. And to improve that, we need to get it right. That means first keeping it simple. Uh, for the vast majority of patients, a straightforward protocol, starting with one or two drugs, advancing within a week or two if there isn't control, advancing more in a week or two after that, can quickly bring blood pressure under control and save literally about 100,000 lives a year in the US just by improving care of this one condition. Not only would it save lives, it would prevent heart attacks, strokes, reduce the need for everything from cardiac surgery to stroke rehabilitation. So it's not just a matter of saving lives, it's a matter of making our healthcare dollar actually maximize health. And we can do that by better managing chronic disease, better managing especially hypertension. And that means using simple protocols. That means eliminating barriers for patients, using telemedicine. That means using team-based care. So every member of the team is doing their part to support the patient. And it means looking rigorously and being brutally honest about what the data shows. What's your level of blood pressure control? And when we look at that carefully and don't allow health systems to drop off the people who didn't come back for care, we're not doing nearly as well as we should. Not only is this the leading cause of death for all Americans that's preventable, it's also uh, the, the leading uh, uh, treatable cause of death uh, among that causes the largest disparity between life expectancy in black and white Americans. Tobacco remains the largest preventable cause of death. Hypertension is the most treatable health condition in terms of the lives that could be saved. Well, that's, a, that's pretty incredible. And I wanna stay with that for a second because I, one of the things that I think a lot of us are wondering is with proposals like that, with interventions like that, is if all of this were to fall into place, is could chronic illness be almost entirely prevented or I don't know if cured is the right word, but but managed in a way that it didn't take such a massive toll on the healthcare system. Public health made most of the difference in the increase in life expectancy in the past century. And public health can do that again through very focused interventions. One of them is tobacco control. We could end the tobacco epidemic in this country. 
the Food and Drug Administration has the authority given to it by Congress in 2009 to reduce uh, the nicotine in combustible tobacco down to non-addictive levels. That combined with the ready availability of treatment, including nicotine replacement and other forms of nicotine, could essentially end the tobacco epidemic in the US. And remember, there are still close to a half a million deaths per year from tobacco in the US. Reducing sodium in our packaged and restaurant foods could save tens of thousands of more lives and reduce blood pressure and the need to treat blood pressure, saving billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars in treatment. So these kind of preventive measures, improving our air quality will reduce the number of heart attacks uh, in our communities and probably strokes as well. So there are things that we can do in public health that communities can do that can make the default decision healthier. So that if you just go about your business, you'll be less likely to have a, a deadly condition. In addition, we can reorient our healthcare system to focus on maximizing the health benefit by focusing on things like hypertension control. That's going to require changing the way we pay for healthcare. That's going to require putting primary healthcare at the center of our healthcare system, rather than as it is all too often in too many places around the United States and world today, an afterthought. I wanna to turn to COVID-19 for our last few minutes. There's of course been a lot of stories about COVID-19 long haulers who are dealing with debilitating symptoms for, for a long amount of time. And there is an argument now that suggests that some of these symptoms or, or long haulers should be considered a form of chronic disability. So what do you think we need in place in the healthcare system, perhaps outside the healthcare system more broadly to support people who are grappling with these symptoms right now, a lot of which we're still sort of struggling to understand. First and foremost, we have to be frank about what we know and what we don't know. Uh, we don't know all we need to know about long haul COVID. That's important in order to care as effectively as possible for people who have it. Uh, what we do know is that if you don't get COVID, you're not going to get long haul COVID. And one of the best reasons to get vaccinated, especially if you're young and healthy and may not be concerned about getting severely ill, is the risk that you could have long COVID, something that hundreds of thousands of people around the world are struggling with, causing difficulty concentrating, difficulty breathing, loss of smell and taste, loss of interest in food, uh, a whole range of problems. We need to learn more about long COVID. The National Institutes of Health is the lead in learning that, and we'd like to see what they find. At the same time, uh, I think the, the reality of what people are living through with long COVID might uh, encourage more people to get vaccinated at Resolve to Save Lives. We did a study of people in this country and found that not many people knew about long COVID. Those who, did, uh, who didn't and learned about it were much more likely to be interested in getting vaccinated if they were hesitant before. Um, but in terms of long COVID itself, uh, it's good to see many specialty centers getting set up. It's good to see that many people do steadily improve with time. Uh, but really, we have a lot to learn and we have to learn it to provide the best possible care for people who are struggling with long COVID. And of course, sort of on the flip side, people who maybe didn't necessarily deal with COVID, but did miss appointments uh, because they wanted to protect themselves against COVID-19 exposure or uh, people who might have lost their health insurance due to the enormous job losses during the pandemic. 
What impact do you think all of those missed appointments, skipped health care are going to have going forward? And what do we need to be prepared for? Well, I would divide the United States and the world here. In the United States, undoubtedly, we'll see uh, worse control of many conditions such as hypertension and diabetes with increased um, adverse events, increased complications, the risk of more amputations, more kidney failure, more strokes, more heart attacks. Um, we know that many people died at home during COVID, not from COVID, but from heart attacks. Uh, a good friend and colleague of mine, uh, Antonio Daher, was working as an emergency room physician in lower Manhattan during the peak of COVID. And he sent me an email um, that was just chilling. He said, we're not seeing any angina. Uh, people with heart attacks were staying home for fear of COVID. And the same uh, is true for uh, the uh, ongoing care that people were receiving. Globally, the problem is even more significant, even more severe. We're already seeing outbreaks of measles in more than a dozen countries around Africa. Measles killed nearly 100,000 kids a year before the pandemic. It could kill hundreds of thousands of more now. We know that tuberculosis went undiagnosed in countries around the world, and there's likely to be a steady increase in the years to come. We know that malaria went untreated and preventive measures under-applied, and because of that, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of children could die in the coming years. So we have our work cut out in front of us. We have to make sure that we make public health and primary care much more effective. We have to learn the lessons of COVID, make sure that we're providing care where it's needed, when it's needed, in the way that's going to help patients the most, and not just play catch up from what we missed during COVID, but truly build a health care and public health system that's more resilient, more effective, that prevents problems before they first exist, they occur, and that treats them and manages them much more effectively. Well, that's unfortunately all the, ha all the time we have today, so we'll have to leave it there. But Dr. Frieden, thank you so much for joining us on Washington Post Live again. Thank you, and it's a delight to speak with you, and let's all stay healthy. As always, you can go to WashingtonPostLive.com to see our upcoming interviews and programs. I'm Yasmina Butalib. Thanks so much for watching. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.